Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. This is the long-awaited episode that I know a lot of you were wanting to hear. Um, Kristen Cobus Dume is a New York Times bestselling author and a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She has a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She's written for many different outlets, New York, the New York Times, Washington Post, NBC Religion, uh, Fox News, just kidding, um, religion. <laughs> All right, so she, anyway, I'll just stop. I'll stop. Uh, she, she's the author of Jesus and John Wayne. Subtitle is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. It's a book that I read uh, shortly after it came out because everybody was talking about it, want to know what I thought about it. Um, I read it cover to cover, and um, what do I think about it? Well, we talk about what I think about it on this podcast, so you can see. I mean, yeah, I I, I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, have some questions, like I'm sure a lot of you have. We, uh, me and Kristen, talk about those questions. I found her to be a delight of a conversational partner, a true Christian academic. In other words, she is. She wants to mix it up. She's a searcher of truth. She welcomes helpful feedback. And I just found her to be super humble and delightful and wise. And I learned a ton in this episode. If you would like to uh, register and attend the Theology in the Raw conference, space is filling up. I know I keep saying that, but yeah, it's filling up. So we got a few hundred spaces left and it will probably sell out, I would say by mid-February is when we anticipate the conference to be sold out. So Exiles in Babylon, the Theology in the Exiles in Babylon Conference, March 31st to April 2nd. Uh, come listen to Jackie Hill Perry, John Tyson, um, David Platt, Derwin Gray, Thabiti Anu Boile, Kimi Katiti, uh, Sandy Richter, uh, worship by, uh, you'll hear worship from, you'll participate in worship by Ivan Wickham, Tanika Wyatt, and there's going to be uh, street hymns, Ellie Bonilla, many, many other speakers. Uh, you can register on my website, PrestonSprinkle.com. All the info's in the show notes. Okay, let's dive into this really interesting conversation with the one and only Kristen Cobus Dume. Hey friends, I'm here with Kristen Cobus Dume. Kristen, thanks so much for being on Theology Raw. I'm so excited about this, and I I know a lot of my listeners are, are going to be or are as you're listening right now really excited about it too. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's just dive into your book, Jesus and John Wayne. I mean, I like probably most people listening. I just everywhere I turn, people were asking me, "Have you read this book? Have you read this book? Have you read this book?" And I'm like, "No," but I love the title. <laughs> And so I do I, I, yeah, read the whole thing cover to cover, took tons of notes and thank first of all, thank you so much for all the work you put into it. Thank you for doing such a high quality academic book written in such a witty, engaging way. Like I hope even your, I hope your critics will even should say like, Okay, I got lots of issues here, but thank you for writing an engaging book. Like, I would rather read an engaging book that I have problems with than a boring book that I, you know, um, can might agree with, whatever. So, and I mean, just, I don't know how much you know, but I'm in an overwhelming agreement with so much you said here. I had my own kind of awakening with a lot of stuff you're talking about years ago. So, um, yeah, definitely a lot of resonance here. Um, 
tell us the backstory. What how, what led you to write this book? And uh, we can go from there. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I actually started looking into this this subject, evangelical masculinity, back in around 2005 or 2006, so a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, simply because my students brought it to my attention. I teach at Calvin University, and I had been teaching a course. I was a, a new prof teaching a class in American history, and I lectured on Teddy Roosevelt because I wanted to show them how gender worked in history, how masculinity worked, how it changed over time, how it was linked to all kinds of other things like economics and foreign policy and religion and race. And so I lectured on Teddy Roosevelt, and then right after class, a couple guys came up to me and said, Professor DeMay, there's this book you have to read. And they pointed me to John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. Uh, and uh, and so I took their advice. I went down to Family Christian Bookstore, bought myself a copy, and I opened it up. And there's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt right up front. And uh, I was really startled to see how this Christian writer was writing about Christian masculinity in a way that was just deeply militaristic huh. and um, you know, building on somebody like Teddy Roosevelt. And when I read the book, I was I was surprised by how little theology was actually there for a vision of Christian masculinity. Hmm. And it was, you know, he's drawing on Hollywood heroes instead, William Wallace and such. And so I thought this is really interesting. And I started looking more into it. And I was actually deeply disturbed by this is the early 2000s, right? This is the Driscoll years, the height. This is, uh, you know, this this macho militant masculinity on steroids. And at a certain point, I, I researched it for like a year and a half. And then I set the whole project aside because it okay. seemed um, too depressing. <laughs> And I, I was really struggling with, is this fringe or is this mainstream? And if it's fringe, is it responsible for me as a Christian to be shining this bright light on what might well be the darkest underbelly of American Christianity? Oh. So I set it aside. And it wasn't until the fall of 2016, uh, in the days after the Access Hollywood tape release, when I realized that the language I was hearing in support for Donald Trump from white evangelicals even in the face of sexual assault, uh, reminded me so much of what I read earlier. Mm -hmm. And so I dusted off that old research and decided, um, I think I have something to say here and uh, that maybe evangelical support for this whole uh, kind of... uh, kind of militant turn isn't a betrayal of their values. There's something deep within their own history mm-hmm. that draws them to it. So that's that's the long backstory. That's what I preach. Like you dug so deep into kind of the why. Like what's the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing that's kind of driving this? It's one thing just to acknowledge it. Um, some people acknowledge it and celebrate it. Other people are like, yeah, I'm not so sure we should be married to the political right and militarism and all these things. Um, but you dug so deep into into i mean things that like like i've got quotes in some of my books with one of them was like close to something you said i'm like oh yeah i read that but you went way deeper and just saw like just unearthed so much stuff was it a lot of like new research for you or is this something that you had to do or yeah so was it new research for the book or a lot of stuff you've already known for a while or uh, yeah, you know, I, I think sometimes uh, people in evangelical circles uh, kind of think this is all my experience because, you know, evangelicals tend to write a lot of memoir, <laughs> tend yeah. to write based on experience. I need to say that the vast majority of what I write about in Jesus and John Wayne is not my personal experience. Okay. I researched this book, right? I didn't even know about some of these figures. Some of them I did. I, you know, kind of one foot in, one foot out. I had a sense of the lay of the land. Uh, you know, I, I teach evangelical students, but 
but uh, you know, no, this is this is a work of research, and so I um, uh, and I have to give a huge shout out to my research assistants. I had three uh, Calvin uh, undergrads mm. who worked with me for two two and a half years, and a couple of them came from deep inside uh, different parts of the subculture, and uh, they were amazing. And so you know, we we did this the research for it. It was really a a, a joint effort. That that makes me feel a little better. Because <laughs> I'm looking at all this stuff you've combed through and digested. I'm like, every chapter, I mean, it's like a ton of work. So that's okay. I was like, you know, it was a in- lot of work. I will say that. And yeah. I, you know, my, my original manuscript was uh, 60,000 words okay. over word count. And, over uh, word I count. Used to, yes, over. Oh, my word. So I had to cut huge swaths of this text. I had to cut so many many additional examples, so much of the you know, more backstory around different figures because mm-hmm. it was ruthless. It took me four hour, uh, months to cut it down to even a yeah. size where I dared show it to my publisher uh, <laughs> first draft because I was like, I, I, I've said this in other podcast spaces and I'm always like praying that my editor never listens because he doesn't know this. He has no idea how, how huge it was at first. And then he saw it and it still had to be cut down and, and crafted considerably once it got into his hands. But no, there was just so much, so yeah. much to uh, sift through. And and it was a lot of work and it was really intense. I mean, the the home stretch I was putting in 18 hour writing days yeah. to get it done. Oh, so really. it was intense. Well, I'm so, you know, you're dealing with obviously such, I, mean, I have the book in front of me here for people who can't see it yet. There you are. Um, I mean, it's just over 300 pages. You got, to, you know, several, I mean, how many dozens of pages of endnotes here? You're dealing with sensitive stuff, right? I mean, you're dealing with, you know, a lot of stuff's controversial. It's very sensitive. You're, you're scratching at some some wounds here, you know? Um, and so you have to, like, I would not have wanted this to be 150 pages with one page of endnotes, you know? Like, right. and you're writing, but like, you have that good balance of like, it's very academically thorough and yet you're writing in a very fluid way. I mean, it's something that I, I, I'm always trying to hit that. Like, can I talk in a normal way, but have... Be, be, be responsible in, in my research and not be just, you know, heavy handing or, you know, reading things with a heavy hand or just not doing thorough, thorough research. So um, I, I'm curious. Uh, well, let, how about this? For those who maybe haven't read the book and I've, I've talked to people that say they feel like they, they feel like they've read it because they've heard so much about it, but they haven't actually read it. So for that person who might say, I kind of know, I think I know what she's going to say here. Give us the two minute maybe overview of Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah, so essentially it's a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism as they're intertwined over the last half century or more of American history. And uh, so it situates evangelicalism in its broader historical and cultural context. It does take theology seriously, but it also uh, interrogates that theology in terms of cultural influences. And it really explains, um, and it does so through uh, examining popular culture, right? I think that's right. that's something that's different about this book compared to a lot of previous histories of evangelicalism. I'm a cultural historian, and I'm looking at these, you know, bestsellers. I'm I'm interested in what's going on in evangelical seminaries. I'm interested in what, you know, some of the leaders are saying, but I'm also very interested in uh, evangelical fiction. You know, um, these, these books are selling millions of copies that frankly, other scholars of evangelicalism are either oblivious to or just kind of roll their eyes at. Um, and so what I'm saying here is that real evangelicalism is not defined 
um, predominantly through its theology. It is a cultural movement. Theology is just a part of it. And so we have to understand that. And it's about power. It's about race. It's about gender. And this is the, this is the faith that it's not, it's not like there's some pure evangelicalism that gets, um, uh, kind of muddied every once in a while. We just have to reclaim that pure evangelicalism. I'm suggesting that the the faith that is handed down, that is preached from many pulpits, that is studied in these book groups and these Bible studies, it is a faith that is intertwined with uh, white identity, mm-hmm. with um, these hierarchies of power, and that this is the evangelicalism. It is deeply political. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is the evangelicalism that helps us explain all the survey data that we have coming at us in the last few years, not just about evangelical support for Trump, but white evangelical views on things like law enforcement, Black Lives Matter and immigration and a whole host of issues that traditional histories of evangelicalism just can't explain. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing more with the, the, yeah, the pop culture, yeah, not just dealing with it, but you're saying that that is more fundamental. It's not like evangelicals are getting their views from like reading the latest commentary put out by the scholar who wrote it, you know, that might play a role, but you're saying the pop culture influence is way more, well, is way more influential. Yeah. So I look at evangelicalism as a consumer culture, right? So did you shop at a Christian bookstore? Do you, you know, now are you listening to evangelical podcasts? But before it was, you know, uh, are you reading books published by Christian publishers? You know, there's this whole subculture that those who are on the inside know intimately well. It's it's almost completely invisible to those on the outside, right? Like like my editor never heard of any of this stuff. And he was questioning <laughs> some of my, my publication numbers when I was writing about these books. He's like, yeah, th- this is inflated. He's like, where did you get this source. It's like, oh, it's in the New York Times. Like, okay, then it's legit, right? Just completely um, uh, kind of separate. And those who are on the inside know it so well, right? It it formed many of us. Um, And and so I see evangelicalism as a consumer culture, but also as a series of networks and alliances. And that's Mm -hmm. part of what this book tries to do too, is show how so many of these individuals were connected through organizations, mm-hmm. uh, you know, conferences, platforming one another, blurbing each other's books, and that creates a kind of system. And they, that system then, which is linked to the consumer culture, uh, is able to define who is in and who is out mm-hmm. and what determines that. And those lines are often drawn around issues of sexuality and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, race absolutely comes to play, whereas other theological issues are, are kind of up for grabs. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I was probably most disturbed. With, <laughs> I don't know that, that like late seventies, early eighties. And I don't, you know, I, I don't want to quote a name unless I can really back up what I'm going to say about them. And I, I can't, I'll let you do that. But like, there's just a few very, very powerful people in evangelicalism. And, and they're so deep into specifically the political right. And yep. it's a how it was a power that's what i did i knew it was there and because that wasn't i guess it was kind of my culture but i didn't know it like i didn't pay attention to it and i absorbed some of it but not not as much as some people but looking back like that was a when i say power i mean like power like like tons of money tons yeah. tons of influence and just powerful yeah. personalities like they're not surrounding themselves with people that will challenge your thinking. It's very much he's like what I would describe and maybe I'm totally inaccurate here, but like very a bunch of a very unhealthy Instagram eight 
names, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> right. You know, we can name names, right? We're, we're talking people like Jerry Falwell Sr., uh, who I know, like, in certain circles, he looks pretty good compared to his son. But, no, you go back in time and you look at this, uh, you know, how um, – uh, kind of the faith that he um, created and promoted through his radio, through his media empire, um, how the, you know, the walls that he he built, the people that he demonized. We can talk about Tim LaHaye, right? Mm-hmm. Incredibly powerful. Most evangelicals, hey, isn't he the guy he wrote Left Behind? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, sold millions of copies. He was also instrumental in building essentially the architecture of the, the Christian right, uh, founded the Council for National Policy. Talk about power and influence, not just in the early 80s, but up to today. Mm-hmm. And right, these are these networks that, um, in, you know, in, incredible amount of money changing hands, political power being wielded. And yet, uh, you know, evangelicals have often kind of told themselves a very sanitized version of their own history. Mm. You know, theirs is a history that is, you know, yeah, there are, you know, some unfortunate things that happened here or there, but really this is a story of good-hearted people who just want to serve the Lord, and they are spreading the good news of the gospel, and this is who we are. And, um, you know, that certainly characterizes some members of this community, but by no means does it characterize the whole of the story. And so that's, I think, one of the interventions that Jesus and John Wayne makes is it says, you know, that's just part of the story, and there's a lot more going on here. Yeah. Would you say you were raised, like, is this your background, your environment? You so I'm right on the edges of it. I I, oh, I sure wish I had a really quick and snappy answer to this question because I get it asked all the time. So I'm from uh, the Christian Reformed denomination, uh, which may <laughs> mean nothing to you. I'm I'm uh, I grew up in a very ethnic subculture in Northwest Iowa, um, Dutch Reformed. Mm-hmm. My mom is an immigrant from the Netherlands. My dad is an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church. He's a theology professor. Um, so I grew up with a very separate identity. I was not evangelical. I've never identified personally as an evangelical. Okay. We defined ourselves over against American evangelicals. Like we reformed people are much yeah. smarter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, so no, that said, I was immersed in the evangelical popular culture because I was taught that, you know, listening to secular music, top 40 was sinful. So I listened to CCM. I, you know, our only bookstore in my small town was a Christian bookstore. And so, you know, those are the books that were available. That was, that was my kind of cultural world. Um, So even though theologically I didn't, I wasn't formed by, uh, you know, evangelical theology. Um, and I didn't self-identify looking back. I, I was absolutely shaped by the, the mm-hmm. popular culture. Now I will say I'm a little bit older too. So I didn't get the full brunt of the whole purity culture that came in the nineties. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like moving out of those spaces by that time, but I certainly had kind of one foot in that world. Okay. I've been to your small hometown just last year. Uh, you're at Dort. Were you your first Monday speaker? I was, I spoke at door. I don't know what it, yeah. they called me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. that's my hometown. I, I grew up just a few blocks from the college. That's why. I don't remember saying that in the book. I'm like, and I think I read it right after I was just there. So I'm like, no way. Okay. Like, I, I probably know the yeah. street you were raised on. That's where that's I come from. And I spoke in uh, uh, Lamar's. Yes. Iowa, which is like an hour away. So, oh, how, yeah, twenty minutes. It's the ice cream capital of yeah, the world. Blue, blue, so, blue money, you know, yeah. so what I'll say is, um, what and I, I talk about this in the intro too is that you know I come from this distinctive confessional tradition, mm-hmm. ethnic denomination, 
But when I grew up, so 30 years ago, um, we still had much more of a distinctive identity. Now I would say, oh, pretty big swath of the Christian Reformed Church is de facto evangelical. Okay. So our pastors now are not necessarily reading Kuiper and Bavink and Doyweird. They're reading John Piper and they're going to okay. the Gospel Coalition. How, how do you, I'm curious, how do you define evangelical? I, I know I could ask 10 people that and get 11 different answers, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you say, so, when you, say yeah. you were raised, I mean, you authority of scripture and sound theology, conservative values, but you would still say you're not an evangelical. So yeah, what, what does evangelical mean? Yeah. I, I mean, there's different ways to define it. And I, yeah. um, I'm always clear, uh, because if you define it organizationally, technically I'm a member of the Christian reformed church, right? A, a local congregation just down the road here. And it is a member of the national association of evangelicals. So right okay. there, you could say I'm an evangelical, okay. um, because I define evangelicalism more in terms of identity and, uh, you know, participation in this consumer culture. That's mm-hmm. where it's not a super accurate definition. Okay. And then the Theologically, uh, you know, uh, the the kind of traditional theological definition of evangelical is uh, authority of the scriptures, mm-hmm. crucicentrism or the centrality of the cross, conversionism, this born again experience, then activism. Yeah. Look at any one of those. I mean, particularly this born again experience that really was not a part of my mm-hmm. um, reformed tradition, right? We were much more God's sovereignty and not and making a choice. Um, very much upholding the authority of the scriptures, but not in a narrow inerrantist way. We have a different scriptural tradition, right? Um, And so crucicentrism, absolutely, but also a real emphasis on um, kind of redemption, consummation, and, you know, kind of future shalom. Mm -hmm. And so even there, theologically, like, yes, ish, but not, not a perfect Mm -hmm. fit. That's really this. I mean, I know this is kind of an ongoing conversation, but I think it's helpful. Like, I don't, so, yeah, when I hear people describe evangelicalism, it's so hard to separate it from the cult, the very culture you're describing. Yeah. Like it's yeah. so, even if the word itself doesn't mean that, or even if every evangelical doesn't mean it, if they say I am an evangelical, they're not trying to say, and therefore I rubber stamp all this stuff about this culture I might be a part of. But it's just, it's hard to untangle that. That's where I go back and forth on whether it's even a helpful term. I mean, I'm like, if people ask me, are you an evangelical? It's, but I'll, my next question, what do you mean? Do you define that term? And I'll let you know if that resonates yeah. with me at all, you know? Um, yeah. It's a, we need a better term. I mean, maybe Christian. Or <laughs> well, um, you know, that's, that's something I, I will push back sometimes where people are, you know, oh, we need to redeem this term. Or, or uh, you know, I've, I have pushed back against evangelical leaders or other scholars who want to say that, you know, a lot of the bad stuff that's happening within quote unquote evangelicalism, those aren't real evangelicals, right? Do they go to church every Sunday? Do they go to Wednesday night Bible studies? Do they, nope, nope. We'll see then they're not real evangelicals, Right. And um, I'm like, okay, okay. If you want to define evangelicalism in very narrow ways, you you go do that and you make mm-hmm. clear that that's what you're doing. But you have to concede that that's not how many people are defining the term when they choose to self-identify as evangelical. And as a historian, I'm very comfortable with seeing how what people mean by evangelical changes dramatically over time. I mean, I've written on this. I've done linguistic studies, mm-hmm. you know, tracing it over the centuries and seeing how the term itself its meaning changes over time. Mm-hmm. And we have to acknowledge that particularly in the last 40, 50 years, and especially even in the last five years, 
what people mean by that term is shifting. And so now people who identify with that term are identifying with the shifting definition. Okay. And that's why it's important to realize that, um, and I write about this in the book, that a whole lot of black Protestants, the majority of black Protestants in this country could check off those theological boxes and count as evangelical. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of black Protestants who can check off all those boxes right. do not identify as evangelical right. at all. Because it is very clear to them that there is a whole lot more to evangelicalism than just checking off these little boxes. Right. I've noticed the right? exact so, same thing with, with black pastors. Yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So I'm a cultural historian. So I'm going to pay attention to what do people mean and why are they unable to check those boxes? So what is the evangelicalism that they cannot identify with? And then we have recent surveys that talk about how. You know, we have like one or two percent of people who um, since the last election no longer identify as evangelical. Yeah. But I think we have six percent more who are um, and they are identifying huh. with the cultural and political term hmm. and not with any theological term. So even here before our very eyes, we're seeing this term continue to morph. Interesting. I mean, the original term was really good, right? Wasn't it a description of a more moderate Christianity against kind of fundamentalism after the Scopes monkey trial really hunkered down into hardcore fundamentalism. And then isn't that the, the origin of it? Like well, Fuller the origin Seminary came back and, a, couple, a couple centuries earlier, oh. right? Where you have evangelicalism um, uh, essentially linked to revivalist Christianity oh, okay. uh, right before that. Uh, even now in Europe, it retains kind of this older um, no. Protestant um, and and then more of a kind of popular revivalist tradition. Uh, but then you're right. In the mid-century, uh, the National Association of Evangelicals was formed, and they did so in part over against uh, the more rigid fundamentalists, mm -hmm. the more extreme fundamentalists. And that's when neo-evangelicalism uh, was an alternative to this harsher um, kind of almost, um, you know, much ridiculed mm -hmm. uh, extreme fundamentalism. However, as a story now, I'll say, uh, we can't draw that distinction too sharply. Yeah. Um, when you look at, say, you know, uh, what I write about Billy Graham and Jesus and John Wayne, he was, I mean, he was the new evangelical. He was the evangelical uh, avatar, celebrity, um, and fundamentals didn't like him. He was too ecumenical, right? right? He wasn't yeah. strict enough. He was all these things. So those, those are important differences and they're legit. That said, there was a whole lot of overlap theologically and culturally between the fundamentalists and between somebody like Billy Graham. And so we can't separate those two, even though it was a rebranding and a very successful rebranding, there is a lot of uh, overlap still between fundamentalists and neo-evangelicals. And that's one of the arguments of Jesus and John Wayne. In a sense, the fundamentalists continue to hold a whole lot of sway within evangelicalism inside the SBC and across American culture. Would you, oh, so many questions. Would you say that today that the more conservative wing of evangelicalism has the greatest influence well, influence and power, are those the same? Let's just say influence. Um, like, do you think that, cons that, that, let's just say, I mean, I could speak freely to you. I mean, like the, the, more, the more unhealthy brand of evangelicalism, this kind of far right or whatever, that that is a growing, powerful movement. I've, I've been in this conversation with a buddy of mine. I keep saying, I don't like, name me one seminary that would be kind of that really, un and I guess maybe we, would, might come up with different names or whatever, but it's like, to me, it seems like the most influential 
But maybe I'm thinking theologically, like the people writing commentaries, the people who are like have popular podcasts or whatever. Actually, that can go either way. I don't know. Yeah. So you you would say that the the, the more unhelpful kind of like Jerry Falwell ish brand of evangelicalism is still very much powerful and alive today. Okay. Yeah, I love to hear you think through this, right? Because this is exactly, <laughs> this is exactly like, these are the questions that we have to be wrestling with right now. Um, what is evangelicalism? Where Where is the center of power? And honestly, as I was writing that my book, this was the constant question, right? You know, 15 some years ago, I was like, no, this is fringe. I, yeah. Not, you know, I don't have to write about this. Uh, and, and, and I, what I realized is I think the center of evangelicalism is shifting and our awareness of where that center is, is shifting. And that's one of the real things that Jesus and John Wayne is doing now, but it's, it's complicated, right? Because, um, I, I think one way to, to, to address the questions that you're surfacing there is to think about what happens if you cross the, the right wing, right? So you, there are a lot of evangelicals who are not, you know, these kind of conservative diehard folks who are, you know, writing the happy devotionals who are, you know, let's, let's think about Beth Moore, uh, six, yeah. seven years ago. Right. Okay. Um, and <laughs> the old, the old uh, Beth Moore. <laughs> what happens though, when an individual or an institution stands against right. the right wing, right? This right guard, um, ask any administrator at any Christian college, what happens, right? They are acutely aware of alienating donors, of alienating, you know, constituents. And so this is the power dynamics that we have to see. So let's look at Russell Moore, another really great example. You know, six years ago, he would be like, this is the center of evangelicalism, Russell Moore, right? Mm -hmm. And he's a super nice guy. And yeah, he's pretty conservative, but you know, that, that's who evangelicals are. Um, and you know, he's, he's out of a job now, um, and Beth Moore's out of the SBC, right? So those are the dynamics that we're looking at. So you don't know where those boundaries are until you bump up against them. And I think that's important to recognize in terms of, uh, the shifting power dynamics that not everybody within evangelicals or look at, you know, um, CCM, look at, you know, Christian artists. And so mm -hmm. many of them are not overtly political and many of them know it is not in their financial interest to be overtly political. Yeah. If any of them would want to come out, die hard against Trump, I guarantee you that their sales would take a nosedive and probably Salem, Salem radio isn't going to be playing them anymore. Right? So this is how we should be understanding these dynamics. Where is the center? That doesn't mean everybody holds these views, mm -hmm. but it means that there will be a price to pay mm -hmm. if you're a pastor, if you're uh, running a Christian college, if you're trying to sell books at Lifeway Christian stores, uh, if you're trying to get on the radio. And that's where, how we should kind of approach this question, I think. Yeah, it's so hard to measure. Like, I, I think <laughs> you give the example of like Russ Moore and Beth Moore, and I don't, Russell Moore and Beth, Beth, Beth Moore, <laughs> like ha, has their influence increased or decreased since they've kind of um, not toed the line, um, or even people like, like a Lecrae or, you know, there's kind of this exodus of formerly reformed black, quote, former evangelicals who were all on the, you know, gospel coalition Piper until in the words of several of my friends in that movement, until we got too black, you know, like, Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. but I don't know, like I, I, I see them and maybe it's just because I'm not in those kind of far right wing circles that I see them having a, like I Russell Moore, I'm like, dude, this guy has a, amazing influential platform. Not, not that he didn't before, obviously he did before, but I'm like, I feel like so many people are like, yay, Russell Moore. I, so I don't know. It's hard. 
it's impossible to measure, right? Like, has their social influence increased or decreased, or has it just shifted to a different kind of audience? Maybe, maybe, maybe that's. The- it's, I, I think that's it, right? It, it's shifting, and so you know, so who who is um, Russell Moore's audience now? And he, you know, and we, and we could we could bring Christianity Today into this conversation too, right? Because right, they yeah. they inhabit this this really interesting space and watching how they've been navigating this, you know, um, very cautious. Then all of a sudden, you know, uh, Gally's going to write this scathing editorial and then quick leave and, you know, kind of like see this. And then, and then they're kind of a, a home base for people like Moore who gets kicked out of the SBC and here, you know, landing pad here. Uh, and so, uh, right. I don't know. Um, influence. Yes. Platform. Yes. But, um, you know, inside evangelicalism or those who are kind of on their way out. Mm. I mean, um, somebody brought this up on Twitter a couple of weeks ago um, in terms of uh, my like platform, such as it is um, in within evangelicalism. Again, I don't identify as an evangelical, mm-hmm. um, but they were comparing to somebody like uh, David French. Okay. Um, and in uh, the way that I was treated by critics in a way that is different than how David French was being uh, treated, even though, you know, they really don't like he's saying he's still their brother in Christ, whereas I'm, I'm a wolf and, you know, off strolling with the devil. And they said, you know, you have a platform. It's not as big as David French's. It's also not as powerful, right? Because he has a ton of pastors who have institutional organizational power who look up to him and you have a bunch of marginalized people. And, uh, yeah. and I, I, I thought you are right. You know, uh, it's, it's not just numbers. It's people who who have lost their pulpits, people who are leaving their churches, people who are feeling alienated. And um, and so as a cultural historian who is attentive to power dynamics, right, that is really important to mm-hmm. keep in mind. There's platform, there's, there's having a voice. And then there's the, um, I, I think often, especially like this generation, we, we tend to underestimate the power of institutions mm. and just how much money is propping up some of these institutions. And some of us can have a, a Twitter account and can do some fun stuff. And we can even write a book. And I went completely outside of Christian publishing to write my book. Um, but that's not the same kind of power as what we see kind of entrenched within this subculture. Uh, that's that's yeah that's actually that's really helpful it's it is complicated and complex yeah that's helpful thank you for that um wait, who'd you publish with i didn't realize it's not a christian publisher oh no it's it's a new york trade house live right publishing uh it's a, oh. a an imprint of of norton oh yeah well done gosh yeah no that was a very intentional choice and people um often mistakenly I mean, evangelicals are so used to inhabiting their own subculture that they kind of assume that the books they read are written by evangelicals and for evangelicals. Uh-huh. And I am certainly incredibly grateful that a whole lot of evangelicals are reading my book, mm-hmm. um, but evangelicals are not the book's primary audience, yeah. right? I was writing beyond that audience. And so I think there sometimes is a little confusion in terms of, well, why didn't you tell us how to fix things? And why didn't you do more theology here, right? It, it, like not, not realizing that I'm, I'm writing as a professional historian with a okay. secular trade publisher who's saying that this story is important, yes, for evangelicals, um, but it's also hugely important for all Americans. And in fact, it has some global implications too. 
that's really helped. That actually answers a couple of my questions. <laughs> Maybe some yeah. others that we're going to get to in a second. I, I heard that you were even, uh, that Ben Shapiro went after you. Uh, did you hear that? I doubt you oh, listen yeah, to yeah. Ben Shapiro. Maybe you do that, but like I... <laughs> Oh, I already yeah, no, mentioned your book. It, it, it was like so, so that's it because this this is with a, a, a an amazing publisher. Uh, you know the the book launched on NPR's Morning Edition. A wow. Nice interview with Steve Inskeep. Um, so it had this national audience right yeah. up front. The Christian audience kind of came around. It took a while. It huh. took a few months for. I mean, you know, some people read it right away. Um, the title, especially the subtitle, is not written in a way that is particularly, you know, attractive to many white evangelicals. It's not written to woo them. You think? Um, the, the intro is a little harsh too, right? And so I think it took a while for evangelicals, for some evangelicals, to realize. Um, not only could they read this, but they could actually talk about it too. And yeah. it took some brave voices out there, including um, some conservative complementarian men who read this book and said, hey, guys, w- this is for us and we need to wrestle with this. Um, and so I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. And so I, I started doing podcasts right uh, early mm-hmm. on. I think I've done probably more podcasts than <laughs> maybe any other author. I'd like to see somebody who's done more um, <laughs> because, you know, early on, I was invited by these people I'd never heard of, but they maybe had three or 400 listeners, conservative yeah. white evangelical pastors. And they said, let's talk. And it's like, absolutely. Let's oh, talk. And they were, uh, with only one exception, uh, incredibly curious, open and hospitable and, um, and have been huge supporters of this work. So, so yes, um, there's the Christian audience has come along and it it, it continues to, uh, you know, they are avid readers and they continue to pass it along by word of mouth, but it's always also had this pretty big national presence. And actually it's been covered in, in international media, um, in at least a half dozen countries featured, um, as well. So, that's fantastic. Oh, man. I might go non-Christian after my next book. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, what um, what are some of the common critiques you've had of the book? Maybe start with ones that you're like, you know what, that's a fair point. That's, that's yeah. I, and, and maybe you might even, if you were to do a second edition, might tweak some things. Like what are some of the top, most helpful, I'll say, critiques that you receive from the book? Yeah, the... Um the best critique that I have encountered is um, one that I've heard very, very rarely, only once or twice. Um, but it's, it's it, to my mind, as a historian, the most legitimate critique. And it is that I neglected uh, the economic analysis here and class-based analysis. Oh, yeah. Absolutely true. Um there is so much more to that story and it would enhance the story I've told. I don't think it changes it, but it, it enriches it. The reason I didn't go there, and this is all, also, I'll just say my editor's primary critique of the book too, as I was writing it, he's like, Kristen, you need more. I can have Kristen. And each draft, like we had, um, my, my publisher actually moved up the publication day. I turned in my manuscript in April. I was supposed to have eight full months to, to do the edits. And then when my editor, who had just come to the publisher um, very recently, you know, got this project kind of thrown on his desk and he he looked at me and said, um, we need to move the publication date up. And so are you cool if we just give you four months to edit instead of eight? <laughs> and so that was it was incredibly condensed and high pressure. Of th- that's when I was putting in those 18 hour days. But um, um, I knew and I was still trying to, you know, 
cut down word word count. I was still over on word count and I had cut, cut out huge sections and taken out so many examples to get the economic analysis in. I couldn't figure out how to do it well because there's actually a missing decade in this book. Hmm. The book, the story really picks up, like you said, in the 1940s, um, neo-evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I had to look back a little bit 19th century, a little bit to fundamentalist, modernist, you know, World War One, Teddy Roosevelt, all that stuff is in there. The 30s are not in there. The 30s are when, like, you can really, that's when I would have needed to, I, you know, talk about conservative Protestants, anti-New Deal. Um, you know, this anti-communism didn't just pop up in the Cold War era. You know, th- these roots were already, you know, kind of pro-business, free enterprise. Mm-hmm. That was there. And then you can bring in the social class analysis and prosperity gospel and weave those strands throughout the entire narrative. I was really afraid. Like you said, this is an engaging book. I worked really, really hard. I, I, I teach, you know, I teach 20 year olds and I see that the most beautiful, intricately argued, uh, you know, academic books are boring to them yeah. <laughs> until they don't read it. And so I was like, I'm not going to make a boring book. Uh, I could not figure out how to start a book and then um, pull the readers in with, um, and and take the time I needed to like flesh out economic analysis that had to start in the 1930s. So that like these are these are the questions that yeah. that you know I grappled with as an author and had to make some choices. I don't know if it was the right choice, um, and I hope to make up for that lack of economic analysis a whole lot in my next book. Um, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't have enriched this one. So that's the best critique as far as I'm concerned as a historian. Okay, that's yeah, that's I didn't yeah I didn't think of that one. And whenever we talk about race, it does, and, and this is not my area, so I, I maybe I should yeah. shut up here. But uh, I don't. So, so, what is race and what is socioeconomic, and the intertwining of that too? And sometimes those are hard to unravel, um, especially when you deal with sensitive things. So, no, that's that's helpful. Let me. Uh, I've got a few questions of my own, then I'll go to Twitter. Sure. Um, and these these really are. I mean, some of the other questions, some are a little bit like. I don't think I agree with you here, but I would love to hear your thoughts or, or just, yeah. yeah, I don't know, maybe more questions. Can you define patriarchy? That was one that I know that term is, so I'm a biblical studies guy. So when I hear patriarchy, I think of a historical description of a societal way of life that existed mm-hmm. in biblical times and is actually prevalent in many parts of the world today. Um, but I know in America, as I'm learning, it's used just differently. So what do you... Yeah. Do you, do you define it? I, I was looking for a definition. I didn't think I saw one. But Yeah, no, I, I could offer a, a, a more precise definition. It's essentially, you know, uh, men wielding authority over women. Would and then say, it can take. No, go ahead. Oh, sorry. You go, I just almost did it right there. So you yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and then it can take various forms, right? So it can be um, authority over women in the family sphere, in the religious sphere, in a broader society, just different ways in which male power is exercised over women, right? And then you can talk about Christian patriarchy and you can can get into biblical teachings. You can get into male headship and but in in. Christian tradition too, you can have it in the religious sphere and it looks different ways in, you know, different traditions. Um, some, it just affects ordination, um, you know, teaching, things like that. For some, it's, you know, authority in the home and there's different ways of interpreting biblical passages. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also you can look at in the economic realm, in the social realm, in the political realm, right? So essentially all the, the ways in which this male authority, or if you want to use a little bit harsher uh, word, you know, male 
male rule over women or domination over women and women subjecting themselves to masculine authority. So that's what we're talking okay. about in terms of patriarchy. But there is not one set, you know, even any definition of patriarchy, that, that's kind of pretty general, pretty loose, because as a historian, it's always in the particulars. Okay. So what does it look like? In this particular moment, in this particular culture, in this situation, how is that power exercised? How is it um, uh, resisted? Um, and to what effect? And so it's always in the particulars that historians are, are most interested in. Okay. Would you say that all forms of complementarianism are intrinsically patriarchal? Like, do you see that whole... I would say that. Yeah, I know that there's a debate and I know that some complementarians are very proud of that. And yes, it's patriarchy. And so I'm like, no, it's not patriarchy. It's something else. Right. Um, but according to the definition that I, you know, have uh, loosely given you, uh, yes, I'm comfortable saying that complementarianism is a patriarchal system. Um, yes. Would you say it's because when I hear patriarchy, it's usually used in a very negative way, not just a descriptive way. Um and it sounds like the way you're describing it is night. Like, would you see the complementarianism, even if it's in good faith and humbly practiced and whatever, um, is intrin like, is this not right? <laughs> not just like, right. yeah, I don't agree with that, but I know there's good people in there that right. aren't all, so, you know, I abusing women or whatever, but like, yeah, you know, so patriarchy is, uh, the term is often used in a negative way in part because feminists use that word a lot. Right. And so there's, yeah. you know, it's, it's used uh, as a term and often it for the point of critiquing and calling out right, instances of patriarchy um, in, in terms of, you know, feminist scholarship and so on. So there's there's that discourse, if you will. Um, but then if you look at, say, complementarianism, um, uh, some complementarians are, you know, have have worked hard to redeem the term patriarchy. Right. Yes, okay. this is patriarchy and we stand by it and we are redeeming this term because it is God ordained masculine authority. And so we're going to stand by it. Um, now, what I feel about complementarianism and what I feel about patriarchy ultimately is going to come down to a theological question, right? Mm -hmm. Um, helpfully, I wrote an entire first book about <laughs> Christian feminism and uh, kind of uh, ways in which from within evangelical Christianity, historically, long before second wave feminism, women and men had contested patriarchy and suggested that patriarchy ultimately was a distortion of God's will for humanity, a reflection of the fall and uh, a reflection of men's ongoing rebellion against God in attempting to usurp authority over women when women were responsible only to God, right? So there's some theological claims right there. And I've, I spent 10 years studying them and I've written about them. Okay. Um, I find that interpretation compelling. I also understand, uh, and I find it particularly compelling, not just because of uh, interpretations of all of the kind of um, really relevant Bible passages, going back to translations as well as um, theological interpretation, but also because of my understanding of some bigger gospel issues of who is Jesus, um, understanding that the kind of radical heart of the Christian gospel as I have understood it and have been drawn to it is that, you know, God becomes human, divests himself of power, offers himself as a sacrifice for the redemption of all things. And so there's a real challenge throughout the gospels 
uh, throughout the scriptures, actually, a challenge to kind of human concepts of power. Mm. And and I'm a Calvinist, so I have a very robust view of sin and, and sin linked to power. And so that also kind of frames my understanding. To get back to your question of complementarianism, then, uh, I, I know many complementarians who are lovely people. And um, so we you know, uh, are they abusive? No. Um, unless you suggest that usurping power over any other right. person yeah. is, um, at its heart, you know, abusive. Um, and many argue that, but, uh, I also understand that there is a long historical tradition that, you know, changes over time, but still consistently comes back to interpreting the scriptures as saying that God's will for humanity is that men exercise authority over women in particular spaces in particular ways. And so I can position myself in this broader history and say, this this is the interpretation that makes more sense to me for a whole lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. But I also understand that there is uh, an interpretive tradition that makes a whole lot of sense to you. And so let's talk about that. Let's go to the scriptures. Let's have those, right? That's, I can do that. Um, that's not what I do as a historian. For me as a historian, what's most important is just knowing that there are contested ways of approaching these questions okay. within Christianity, within American evangelicalism. As soon as I know that, then the shape that this patriarchal belief takes, or even the existence of patriarchal uh, commitments in evangelicalism demands some explanation just as evangelical feminism demands explanation. Like, right. why are these women saying this thing in this moment? What are they drawing on? How are they approaching the scriptures? I do that when I look at Christian feminism. I do the same when okay. I look at Christian patriarchy. That's super helpful. Yeah, thank you for that. That, that makes a lot a lot of sense there. I, you know, I just, when people throw uh, terms around to kind of capture such, like, complementarianism, it's like, okay, they all have one thing in common, really, you know, some kind of leadership in the church or in the home, whatever. But man, there's so many different brands and species and some aspects of that that are insanely unhealthy and abusive and others that I think are much more beautiful. Even if you disagree with the theological underpinnings, it's like, oh, but this is coherent. People are, are being mutually submit, like they're living out both <laughs> Ephesians 5.21 and 5.22, maybe, you know. Um, so so there's a, a, a complex dynamic there. So it's hard to, okay, so... It's helpful to know that you're not necessarily using it as a kind of intrinsic, like a, you know, racism and patriarchy and these things. Like some things are just intrinsically just morally horrific, no matter what your beliefs are. Other things have maybe a more complexity to it. I've got a lot more questions to get to, though, so let's just, I don't want to give you too long. So here's one that I had. It didn't come up a lot, um, but you, in a few places, you kind of, it seemed that you seem to kind of critique evangelicals who are critiquing Islam. <laughs> There's one book here by uh, R.C. Sproul and Abdul Salib, The Dark Side of Islam. You didn't, I mean, you didn't say that was wrong to write that book necessarily. But part of me is like, your book could almost be called The Dark Side of Evangelicals. <laughs> like <laughs> militarism and patriarchy and subjugation of women, all this stuff. I'm like, wow, should, shouldn't you be celebrating Christians who are doing to Islam what you're doing to evangelical i mean or am i i'm not yeah. an islam scholar or anything it just seems like or you said you know white evangelicals are significantly more authoritarian than other religious groups i'm like i'm not a religious historian but is that true like <laughs> oh yeah it's i'm just you know citing sociological surveys yeah 
So uh, or white evangelicalism more authoritarian, is more authoritarian yeah, so than Islam? Claims. Sorry. Oh, sorry. So you would say that white evangelicals are more authoritarian than other than Islam? Oh, the, uh, so you have to look at, I don't know that that survey compared it to Islam. And then you'd have to look at American Muslims versus mm. uh, Muslims in different countries, right? I mean, we're looking at a right. vast, vast you know, number of, of human beings if we're talking about Muslims. Sure. So, um, so you have to look at the survey data. Um, but in America, white evangelicals were the religious demographic that scored highest according to these measures of authoritarianism across the board. Um, so that's where the footnotes come in, right? You can just look at the footnote, you okay. can pull up the survey data and see where did I get that conclusion from, make sure that I interpreted the data correctly. And, and that's where it's okay. from. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I love the question of, am I, am I know better than, uh, these, yeah, Islamophobic people, um, that I implicitly or explicitly critique. One thing I will say is, um, you know, very important is what I am writing. Is it true? Right. Because the popular evangelical books on Islam then and now can contain a wealth of falsehoods. Okay. They are making stuff up. I mean, the the, the case of, right, that's why I have a, a almost a whole chapter on these fake ex-Muslim terrorists. They came to my university, to Calvin, uh, like years ago. That's how I first learned of these guys, because one of my colleagues, who's an expert in Islamic history, went to hear them speak. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. And then he reached out to Jim Daly, a focus of the family, and found out they knew he was a fraud. Oh, wow. um, and, and they were still promoting him. And, and, and these guys continue to be promoted in these circles, spreading absolute lies about Islam. Hmm. That is the huge difference. So, I mean, you, you will have Muslim scholars who say critical things about authoritarian tendencies okay. in certain branches of Islam. Absolutely. And their scholarship is important. Um so is is what I'm saying true? That's that's where I'll start. Most important. Okay. Um, and again, I'll point you to the survey data. I'm not just like making stuff up or they right. I feel this way about them. We have a wealth of um, survey data that um, and then just, you know, archival and you know documentary history. That said, there's another layer to your question, which is, couldn't I be a little nicer? Right. Couldn't I just be a little bit more positive? And I know on Twitter, a lot of the questions were like, could you, you know, wasn't there anything good about Elizabeth Elliot? Uh, oh, I get yeah. a lot about James Dobson. <laughs> uh, come on. You know, John Aldridge. <laughs> these guys, these are good guys. Right. Good guys. Um, and this is where I'll, I'll, you know, first say that I did not write a history of evangelicalism. Right. right? I am writing a history of white evangelical masculinity as is, it's intertwined with militarism over the last half century of America. So Elizabeth Elliot is relevant to that story in specific ways. This is not the whole of who she was. Mm -hmm. Many other books have been written about her. She's written a lot of books, right, yeah, yeah. Um, that people have read. Okay. And there's a lot more to evangelicalism than this strand that I am pulling through. There's more to James Dobson than what I, you know, I try to, since he's so important, I try to give a pretty full picture of who he is, who he appeals to, where he's coming from. He gets more of a biographical, you know, section. Uh, but there too, he is relevant to my story for these reasons. And that's the part that I highlight. This is how historians work. It's a thesis-driven enterprise. Yeah. And this is what we do. Now, the question is, 
do I skew my story because I'm, I'm ignoring evidence that would undermine my thesis. You know, so far I will say in academic circles, this book is holding up extremely well. When people go check my documents, they're like, yeah, you took this in context appropriately. And not only that, there is a whole lot more there that you could have used. (laughs) Right. And you're, you you know, there's just a whole lot more there. So, you know, those are the questions. And then is it, is it not nice? Um, um, I didn't, I've seen, I didn't, oh, ha- you can respond to that if you want. I, I like a I little know. spicier writing and I didn't think you were not nice. I thought you were <laughs> calling out stuff that, is it you mean yeah. not nice or are you just revealing not niceness? You know, so exactly. I, I didn't, I didn't exactly. have that critique at all. Um, but uh, what I, so what I will say, and I, I had the opportunity to write uh, a piece, um, in the New York times actually last spring, I was asked <laughs> to write about belief in history and I thought, Oh, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to write. And it was about the disruption that Jesus and John Wayne has caused in evangelical spaces, precisely because evangelicals within their subculture, right, with all of their Christian publishers, um, had controlled their narrative for so long, had excluded the darker side. And so for a whole, like for generations, actually, they've told a bright and rosy story about who evangelicals are, salt of the earth people, lovely people, (laughs) you know, doing God's will. And so when I come in with the the darker side, it seems shocking. But let me say that a lot of the stuff that is shocking to evangelicals in this book is mundane to other historians. Billy Graham, I am, none of this is new. It's all in histories that have been written that evangelicals just didn't bother reading. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, so this is a, so, a genuine question because I, I, I've, I've wrestled with this, like, cause I, I, that's the answer I was hoping you would give and, and thinking you'd give like saying, Hey, okay, I didn't cover everything, but here was what I set out to do. And I stuck to that mission. Yes. Is it just inevitable that in doing so, which I think has a tremendous amount of journalistic honesty, like I'm staying in this lane, this is what I'm doing. I've already said that up front. I've marked out my territory. I'm going to do that to the best of my ability. The inevitable byproduct is you you do, not you, but just anybody who mm-hmm. does that. I've done this. You create a narrative that could give that kind of impression. Now, yours, I don't I don't have that problem with your book because, like you said, there's been so much whitewashing. Yes. We need probably a few more of these. You can write, you know, <laughs> like, um, and that still would maybe tilt the balance a little bit, you know, it, towards a more yeah. healthy, you know, um, whatever. I think but, so. Uh, and the thing is we need, my book does not negate the other histories that are out there. Um, my book comes alongside. And so the task then is for us to say, how do these fit together? How do these, yeah. you know, good, lovely narratives also interact in the same, you know, with, with this darker side, because that's the way this works. That is the way this works. Um, and so I, I also imagine that the way that history works, um, and kind of historiography is I have moved the conversation over here in terms of scholarly approaches to evangelicalism. The next thing that's going to happen is somebody's going to push back against it and move it over here. Yeah. It's not going to go all the way back here. Right. But it's going to go. And that is exactly as it should be. Right. I'm looking forward to the first books that are going to start doing that and saying, yes, but. Right. Yeah. And then look at different angles. And they're already, you know, really good books who, who that that are not all like, especially in, in academic circles that are not evangelicals good, evangelicals bad. But there are not books that have done a sufficient job. I think it's fair to say not many to um, 
help us understand the authoritarian impulses within evangelicalism to help us understand the last five years, because this whole narrative of they're holding their noses, that just cannot be sustained anymore. And the idea that they're betraying their values, there's only so long you can betray values until we have to start asking, uh, maybe we got those values wrong. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Here's another one. I guess you might have partially answered it. Now, the other thing that I, um, well, Just calling it not just evangelicalism, American evangelicalism, conservative American evangelicalism, but like white evangelicalism. Now you've made very clear, I mean, the stats are clear that the overwhelming majority of people in the brand of evangelicalism you're uh, critiquing are white. But there were times when, I don't know, do white men have the corner market on unhelpful masculinity (laughs) no no not at all i just can't write those other books no okay i mean that's that's what people are saying too like oh it's it's just you know white evangelical men who are horrible i'm like oh come on just read a little feminist scholarship you can find horrible men all over the world (laughs) Uh, right you know what no i just i i I don't have expertise over there or you know the people are like well you know when are you going to write a book on harvey weinstein in hollywood i'm just like you know i i don't do that kind of history like it's not that i'm just writing scathing books about bad people that's not my genre right you know i i'm i'm actually a historian of religion gender and politics and um and there too what what's curious it just it dawned on me recently when you know i I was seeing some of these critiques of um why can't you say anything nice about evangelicals right and first of all like there are some really powerful like evangelicals in jesus and john wayne who are in the minority right you know so we can talk about jimmy carter we can talk about you know uh these these voices of resistance that that just get squashed um but also like i said my whole first book is on evangelical feminists in the early 20th century. Huh. I tend to think they're pretty remarkable people. I, you know, and and yet the very people, you know, conservative, complementarian, white evangelical leaders who are deeply offended at how negative I am about evangelicalism are not out there championing that book, which is actually holding up a social justice tradition within early 20th century, late 19th century evangelicalism, right? And so there too, it's like, who gets to define what stories get get told, what right. stories get celebrated? And, you know, historians, we just move around and we write the stories that we think need to be told. And that that's just the inevitable complexity of being a historian. You're going to tell this yeah. story, but how can we tell that story? Because I didn't. <laughs> That's not the story I'm telling. Right, I'll try to but, get to it. Right, but again, like that does inevitably build a particular narrative. I mean, this is something that all historians know. Like there is no unbiased history. There is no just raw, like just, I don't know, like here's all the facts that occurred in history. Like no, anytime you take your hand at doing history, you're building a particular point of view, including biblical history. This is what I used to tell my Old Testament students. Like, you're going to get a very, very biased understanding of the world. I happen to think as a Christian, it's a good slant. Well, not even good. I mean, most of the Old Testament is very negative on God's people. I mean, you talk about criticism. I mean, there was no single good king in the Northern Kingdom, you know. Um, So, but, but it is a point of view, but history is always, that's always history, right? It always has a point of view. Absolutely. You know, I teach, uh, history every day and, uh, (laughs) I'm always doing this with my students, you know, when they find a text really compelling, I'm always asking, okay, 
what evidence are they using? Does it hold up? Mm -hmm. What perspectives are they bringing? What theoretical framing are they bringing? Do you trust them? And then the all important question is, and the hardest one is what, what is not here? Because when you read a history book, you're like, this is it. This is the story. But it's not. It was it was pieced together. So like, you know, just heard me talk about earlier about the things that didn't make it into this book. And there is this huge long list of things that didn't make it in. Some of them, it was was a question of can my readers stay with me? Some it was word count. Some it was I had initially proposed an entire chapter on alternate models of evangelical masculinity that weren't this militant one that existed alongside. And that got nixed at the proposal stage because I was told, Kristen, you have a thread, you pull it through. That'd be great for an academic book, maybe for a Christian publisher. That's not what this book is. And they were right, right? But every book, whether it's very clearly thesis-driven like Jesus and John Wayne or one that seems or presents itself as super objective, every author has made exactly the same number of those choices. What goes in, what stays out, and how do we string together these bits of evidence into a coherent story? Okay, yeah, that's helpful, that's helpful. Yeah, because as some of my, my wife's an MK, we do, we're always we travel a lot around the world and stuff. And it's like, there's so many lines here where you had like for conservative white evangelicals, the good news of the Christian gospel has become inextricably linked to staunch commitment to patriarchal authority, gender difference, Christian nationalism. I'm like, I've been to so many countries where nobody's white and that that would equally. Oh yeah. 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 I'm 10, you know, sometimes I'm in their own books. Right. And that's what's so interesting. Like, um, uh, you know, Jesus and John Wayne has gone global and I've heard from so many Christians globally saying, uh, Oh, we need to talk. We need to talk. And sometimes Uh, it's, you know, homegrown versions. Um, and, Often, though, it is the export of this Jesus and John Wayne Christianity that then gets received in local, often patriarchal or even tribal contexts and something else entirely, um, you know, and, and often very toxic emerges. And so, yes, this is not the whole story. And that's why, you know, as, as often as I could, I tried to qualify conservatives, okay. white evangelicals, Americans in this decade, or, got it, got and then it. at a certain okay. point you have to sometimes just use the word evangelical because otherwise it's, you know, word count. I do have one more, but I think you probably already answered it. It's basically like you could almost write well, and this is because you, you aren't trying to give a therefore. It's not a Christian book. It's a historical book written by somebody who happens to be a Christian. But you weren't yeah. getting a here's five ways to fix the church in the end. Because no. no. if you did do that, that's what I would say. Hey, the answer isn't to now marry the political left. <laughs> the answer is to let's give our allegiance to Jesus' kingdom, which is contrary to the ways of ruling the world. At least that's what I would say. But. Let, there are a few, let me, so the, before, how, how much time do you have? I, I want to respect your time. We're coming up on an hour here. Do you have a few more minutes? Uh, yeah, I, I've, or, I've got another like 10, 15 minutes tops and then I have another call. I will keep you less than 10 for sure. So okay. uh, I just want to make sure I got some, there's a lot of good questions on twi- Twitter. You've already addressed this, you know, painting an all or nothing picture of people like Elizabeth Elliot. You've already answered that. Yeah. Um, Bought the book, haven't read it yet. Sorry, bud, I'm not going to answer the question. <laughs> There's too many here that have read it. Um, have anybody... They, this keeps coming up. Like, Do you think Promise Keepers or Piper have contributed anything positive to the faith? You've already said... Oh, yeah, yeah. So here, let me just quick um, take another stab at that, too. Like, uh, This is not a, a kind of... Um, uh, it's not either or, certainly. 
And it's not buffering. You know, if you say this number of negative things, you have to say this number of positive things. That's not how this works, because ultimately this isn't uh, this isn't to figure out a ledger, good or bad. Uh, It's it's striking that many evangelicals are approaching it this way. Like, give us something good here. Right. (laughs) Um, It is to figure out how this all works. Right. And so. You know, just because we can, first of all, are we even going to agree on what's good? Like I said, you know, I, I tend to think some of this evangelical feminism from earlier in the century was really good. And some of these very guys who want me to write more good stuff about evangelicals yeah. would say that's bad, right? Like, in fact, <laughs> they don't even talk about it. They pretend like it doesn't even exist. So what's good and what's bad? Um I don't know. Uh, but if you take, you know, John Piper um, and, you know, maybe I read a couple of pages of his view of Christ. I'm like, absolutely. That is the Jesus I believe in. Is that a good thing when he also then links that teaching about Jesus to teaching that is demeaning to women, Mm -hmm. um, that creates cultures of abuse, systems of abuse? You see what happens is the good stuff becomes um, poison Mm -hmm. because it ends up essentially promoting and protecting and covering up for the bad stuff, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't mean we didn't talk about the good stuff. Um, but again, this isn't a ledger. Um, Promise keepers, same thing, right? A lot of those guys went there um, absolutely intending to serve God. Mm-hmm. A lot of the leaders were in it for that. Now, there's also a lot of money being made. There's a lot of book deals happening. Um, not all, you know, I sell books, nothing wrong with selling books. Um, but you just have to uh, start looking, how does this system work? What is actually mm-hmm. happening here? And how does, you know, what were the limits to this racial reconciliation movement? Mm-hmm. There were some real limits. There was some real pushback. And, um the best way that we can answer some of these questions is to bring in other voices. Mm -hmm. So it's African-Americans who can give a much needed perspective on race in evangelicalism or in the promise keepers movement. And maybe it's not just up to the white evangelical guys who feel super cool going to a promise keepers rally and the leaders who are amassing enormous power in, in, you know, being on the platforms there to offer the final assessment of what was actually going on there, right? It's part of the story. There can be true believers, but again, come on, I'm a Calvinist here. Uh, (laughs) What else is happening? And and what are the effects on people who are not there? And what are the effects on people who are there? And what does it mean when when your highest spiritual experience is in a space where women are intentionally excluded. Mm. You know, what What does that do for young boys being taught that this is where, you know, religious faith is strengthened? Good things can happen, but there's a lot that comes along with it as well that could have some negative implications, particularly for people who are not invited into the room. That's, no, that's a good, that's a good analysis. That's great. And specifically, and this is what I loved about your book, is creating, and and again, because you weren't preaching, but I hope the inevitable byproduct will be more cross-ethnic conversations, um, less white people in power, you know, in these areas, and then non-white people in power in these areas, like more, you know, cross-pollination and ethnic uh, reconciliation. Um, So I don't know if the, uh, I don't know if that's a hidden intent. Yeah, I mean, hopeful byproduct of telling a neutral or a 
history. But. Yeah, for those conversations to happen, it's really important for white evangelicals to realize that they are white evangelicals, right? Yeah. That their faith is not just biblical, right. right? That we are all approaching the scriptures with our cultural, racial, right, socioeconomic, right. all these lenses. Um, and and uh, many people who are not at the centers of power know that full well, right? Yeah. You know, black Protestants know that they are black Protestants. White evangelicals right. usually don't call themselves white evangelicals. They call themselves Christians. We're Christians <laughs> and we're biblical. You see how this works, right? And so it's super disruptive to say, actually, you know, I've been accused multiple times of being a racist against white people because I use the adjective white in my subtitle. Yeah. Um, uh, because, you know, no, we're not. We are just Christians, right? Now, as a yeah. as a historian, <laughs> that, that, no, 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 no. You know, you, yeah. that is your belief. But let's talk about, yeah. honestly, you know, to use a catch word, the privilege involved in just seeing yourself as generic, standard-setting Christian. Right. Yeah. And I, I didn't have that critique. I didn't. I didn't at all think that. My, no, my I'm only, not blasting you. You just, yeah, you know, yeah. you get me talking. I have ideas. I'm no, I've, I've, I've had Willie James Jennings on to talk about. <laughs> there you go. And, and lots go. of people to talk about whiteness and, and what that means and what it doesn't mean. And, and sure, people use these racial categories in ways that might not be helpful. But any, any I mean, we just apply it generally. Any dominant racial group in any society is going to be less self-aware of, typically, exactly. of, of how their race plays in, in society. Um, exactly. I, you know, I, we, I go to, I do a lot of work in, I've got a lot of friends in Nepal and it's technically doesn't have the caste system anymore, but it very much does, you know, and we work with a lot of, um, lower caste, uh, people and they're, they're very aware that, you know, I've got a friend who, um, his, his parents, um, were, are lepers. Um, and he, this kid speaks better English than most people in Nepal, has a college degree, super smart. And he's like, I'll never get a job. Like, I'm not, I don't, you know, like there's a stigma that, you know, this guy's more, more, more qualified than most people in the country, you know, to do whatever. Like, this guy's brilliant, you know. Um, he's, so he's very aware of what any kind of power dynamic has, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I, I just, I, yeah, it's, it's more like is, is, mas- is the unhealthy masculinity intrinsic to whiteness or is this a is this a male problem human problem or is it really unique to whiteness that's where i was like i don't think it's unique to whiteness even though no, it manifests itself but you're saying you weren't saying it was you're just saying i'm dealing no, with this. not unique but i just say yeah it manifests itself in particular ways that are you know distinct um even though absolutely not unique so uh no i mean in fact i've heard from a number of um black pastors and african-american women who say um we need to do our own right. self-critique right. along these lines, right? It's There are similarities, there are differences, but we need to do this. And again, that is another book. And um, and we could talk also about some of these patterns, these dynamics in Hispanic spaces as yeah. well. And I did some research into that and realized it was so oh, okay. vast. Uh, I made just a couple of kind of nods in that direction, but that too is its own entire right, book right. link study at the at at the minimum. And plus, you wouldn't—I mean, for various reasons, you wouldn't be the one to write that book. <laughs> well, I mean, you can like you don't have to be. Uh, you know, I, I wrote about men, and I'm not a man. Um, so, yeah. so historians can write about other. Again, this is a research-based book. This is not 
largely based on personal experience. So I could, <laughs> if I had the training, if I had language facilities, if I, you, know, you can write that. And, and there's advantages and disadvantages from writing as an insider or as an outsider. But the, the cool thing about scholarship is there are also methods and practices and peer review and standards so that we we're quite rigorous yeah. about, you know, how we approach these topics, which enables us to write about things that are very distant from us or things that yeah. are very close to us. And there are rules that we should follow in, in both yeah. ways. That's good. Chris, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so thank you so much for I mean, coming on the podcast. You've been an absolute delight to talk to. Love, love your book and the conversation that it started. Some of the ripple effects, the waves, the pushback, whatever. Like, all oh, that's good and needed and healthy, I think. So I'm glad you uh, think that too. So, yeah, many thank blessings you so on much. your next project, whatever that may be. Yeah, next one is called Live, Laugh, Love and uh, looking at a culture of white Christian womanhood. So working on that. Uh, <laughs> As we speak, or at least in, in a few moments, I'll get back to that. You're not slowing down. All right. <laughs> All right. Take care, Crystal. Yeah. Thank you so much. 